morning. Mary is your quintessential mother of toddlers. She's just hoping for a few quiet moments in her day where no one's fighting, no one's had a blowout, and she can just have a few moments of peace to get a couple things on her list done. And on one particular morning, uh, a window opens up. Her three-year-old daughter and her five-month-old son are playing together without fighting, And she steps into the other room, and she grabs her to make a couple phone calls. She makes one phone call. Things are going great. She's in the middle of her second phone call, and she notices something. She notices that things are too quiet. As parents, there are two kinds of quiet. Good quiet and too quiet. Um, And it's the second one. And so she looks around the corner, and she can no longer see her three-year-old daughter, and her five-month-old son. So she hangs up her call, and she goes, and she finds both of them in her three-year-old daughter Adrian's room. And she says to Adrian, Adrian, I have told you, you cannot carry your brother down the hall to your room. You are too little. You could drop him. You could hurt him. And she said, Mom, I didn't carry him down here. And then the mom says, well, he's five months old. He can't crawl. How did he get all the way in your room if you did not carry him? And her daughter smiles, a bit proud of herself. She said, I didn't carry him. I rolled him. (laughs) All of us have days like that, where we realize just how little control we have where life feels out of control around us, and we may laugh a little bit if it's funny. We may cry a little bit because it's hard, but, but we feel a little bit like that mom. And I wonder if, if maybe you've had one of those days lately where life just feels around you out of control. And, and those days are hard, and those, those seasons are difficult, but I think in the same way that there's good quiet and too quiet, there is life being out of control, and then there is you being out of control. See, I think for many of us, what's even harder than life being out of our control is feeling like we lack self-control with ourselves. In, In my short life, I've discovered that all of us have some place where we struggle with self-control. Some place where we feel like despite our best efforts and best intentions and great self-awareness, we just struggle with self-control. Maybe it's with a substance. Maybe it's with a, a person. Maybe it's our words. For me, it's often with this. When my seven-year-old has to remind me to stop using my phone and get off my phone. And I realize, oh man, my seven-year-old is better at this than me. Then I pause and realize my seven-year-old does not have more self-control than I do. He doesn't have an iPhone, so that isn't his struggle. (laughs) But I wonder for you, where do you struggle with self-control the most? Where's that place where you just struggle with self-control? And if you have a hard time thinking about it, let me ask you a clue question. Where do you feel guilt, shame, and condemnation the most? Where do you feel unworthy? 
And where do you feel like there is a thing that has dominated you that you just cannot get over and you cannot make sense of? A place where you can't experience victory, but you always feel defeat. A place where you are afraid that if anybody ever figures out how little self-control you have, you'll be embarrassed and shamed. That's probably the place that you struggle with self-control the most. See, what I've found is that all of us have a little bit of Superman within us. If you remember the comic story, Superman, Superman had one, just one vulnerability, kryptonite. Though he could soar over buildings, have bullets bounce off him, see through any wall with x-ray vision, once he got close to kryptonite, he was toast. And I think all of us have something like that. Some area that we feel completely vulnerable and weak. And what's so interesting is that on the heels of talking about eight other virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, Paul ends this description of the fruit of the Spirit with self-control. And as I've been preparing for today, I feel like self-control in some ways is a summary or a capstone on the fruit of the Spirit. If you're somebody who struggles with self-control today, and I've brought up a lot of unpainful th- painful thoughts, uncomfortable realities, I just want to remind you of something. The fruit of the Spirit is singular. All throughout this series, I've reminded you of this. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. In the same way, the Bible does not end with revelations. It's fruit of the Spirit and revelation. And that isn't just a grammar point of thought. It is a significant reality because I think as we look at these nine things, all of us have something that we go, man, I am not that and I'm not sure I will ever be that. Well, the promise of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is God is building all of these in us. And if you feel like one of those on the list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is something you don't have, the good news is they're not the fruit of you. They're the fruit of the Spirit. And in the same way that a cluster of grapes grows together, God is going to bring all of these to life within you if His Spirit lives within you. They're His fruit, not yours, and they're singular. He's going to bring them all to life together. Now let's talk about what self-control means. In Galatians 5, Paul uses the Greek word enkratos, which means self-control. Its definition is strength, power, might, or dominion. The concept of self-control is someone who has strength, power, might, or dominion, not over someone or something, but themselves. How do we do that? Well, that's our big idea for today. We experience self-control this way. Self-control is the fruit of our choices made with his power. Self-control is the fruit of our choices made with God's power. Now today, we're going to start today's message where we started the series, and in some ways, we're going to finish the series where we started the series too, in Galatians chapter 5. So if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, that's totally okay. We all had a period where we were new to the Bible, so there's no judgment here. 
If you're looking at the index and you're not sure where to find it, Galatians is near the back of the Bible in the section called the New Testament. It's after First and Second Corinthians, and it's before Ephesians. And we've spent the last 10 weeks walking our way through a list that happens in this passage of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, with this being the last fruit, which means we're not talking about the fruit of the Spirit next week. What we're talking about next week is a new series that we'll be starting, and that series is called Shortage. Why more is never enough. Over the last couple years, we've all experienced shortages. Hopefully, you've used up your stash of TP in your house from March and April of 2020. Maybe you've decided to start shoring up something else that you feel like there may be a shortage of later. Maybe you moved to Prescott and your house took longer to build because there was a shortage of lumber. Maybe you've ordered things and seen them on back order because there's a shortage in the supply chain. Or maybe as you look ahead and you look at your statements that came this quarter from Wall Street, you see a recession coming and there may be a shortage of cash. In light of all of this, I thought it was a good time to talk about money because I believe the primary lie we all begin to embrace is if I had more than I have right now, then I would have enough. And what we find in Scripture is that Jesus talks about money at least twice as much as he talks about heaven and hell. Because money is this primary uh, obstacle to us experiencing all he has for us. So I know that whenever we bring up money in church, things get a little bit uncomfortable. I can feel that sometimes. And so if I don't see you till September, I will know why. (laughs) But I'm hoping that I will Because my promise to you is I'm not doing this series to set up an ask to ask you to give more money. We will talk about generosity because you can't talk about Scripture's teaching about money without covering generosity. But what we'll see in Scripture is God, more than anything else, wants a certain kind of life for you. He doesn't want money from you. And often our relationship with money gets in the way. So... I'll preach the rest of that sermon next week, but I wanted you to have an idea of where we're headed. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to stand with me. We're going to read together these 11 verses from Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Catherine will keep you in the right verse. Paul says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. They are opposed to each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, Paul says, as I've warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Jesus, I pray for those who are in this room or who are watching this now or later 
who feel defeated and in shame because of their struggle or the absence of self-control. I pray that today they might gain a vision of what you might bring to life in them and through them. We take your promise as a guarantee in Ephesians 3 where you say that you are capable of doing exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine. And I pray that those who are experiencing shame and defeat when it comes to self-control would experience that promise being kept today. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This morning, what I want to do in the time we have is I want to walk you through five important steps we take with the Spirit because the, the metaphor or the image that Paul uses in this, in this text is of walking with the Spirit. So we have to walk and keep in step with the Spirit. And so these are five steps. Here's the first one. The first step is remembering how the cross of Jesus transformed us. If you're going to walk with the Spirit, you have to remember how the cross of Jesus transformed you. And Paul articulates this really succinctly in Galatians 5.24, if your Bible is still open. There he says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I highlighted those two words so you recognize that Paul is speaking in the past tense. He's not talking about a current reality, something that just happened or is going to happen. He's talking about something that happened in the past. He's saying in the past, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you belong to him, your flesh has been crucified. Now, he's not talking about your literal flesh, like the flesh I'm grabbing right now. He's talking about your sinful nature, your fleshly nature, the, the, the part of you that is opposed to him. This is really important to talk about because all too often the church has been the facilitator of a belief that our bodies are bad. Your body is not bad. It was made in the image of God. God had one when he came to earth, took on flesh, and we called him Jesus. And Jesus today sits at the throne of God with a body. Bodies are not bad. All too often, we end up in places that are unhealthy with body image issues and hatreds for our bodies because of twisted teachings about the flesh. The flesh is not your body. But the flesh is that part of you that is opposed to God that wants to continue to walk in sin. And what Paul says is that part of you was in the past crucified with its passions and desires. What that means is that the power your flesh once had has been defeated. And the power that is now available to you when it comes to your passions and desires lives in the Spirit. And so the invitation Paul is saying is that we need to see our flesh the way that Jesus does. Yes, as an obstacle. Yes, as a source of temptation. Yes, as a place where we may struggle, but as something that has been defeated and crucified. And so as we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, we begin to see ourselves and our flesh the way that he did. In Galatians 2, earlier in this book, Paul famously said, I have been crucified with Christ. Again, past tense. 
And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the gospel isn't just this message we need to hear before we put our faith in Jesus. This gospel message is what helps us to begin to see our present battles with our passions and desires as God does. Yes, you will be tempted, but the source of your temptation does not have more power than God, and your flesh has been crucified on the cross with Jesus. In light of that, we take step number two, which is to declare war and bankruptcy. To declare war and bankruptcy. If you have your Bible still open, let your eyes fall to Galatians 5.17. There Paul says, For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. They are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. What Paul is saying is there is an inner war going on inside of him. He echoes this at the end of Romans 7 as well, where his flesh wants what is opposed to the Spirit, and the Spirit wants what is opposed to the flesh. He says these are opposed to each other, and the result is is that we continually don't do what it is that we want to do. I know all of us have had that experience where we set our mind, our intention, that we are going to do something or not do something. And you fast forward the scene and we end up doing what we didn't want to do or we don't do what it was we wanted to do. This is the reason for this. There is a war going on inside of you. But here's what Kyle Eidelman says. He says the most deadly war is the one most of us never realize is being fought. So this war is happening inside of us, but for many of us, we're the last one to the party. The Spirit knows there's a war. Our flesh knows there's a war, but we're like, oh, there's a war. And because of that, we continually lose. We lose the war because we don't even know it's being fought. And so if our flesh has been crucified— and our flesh is at war with the Spirit, we need to join that battle and declare war against our flesh. Again, not against your body, but against your flesh. Additionally, we have to declare bankruptcy. Now, I've watched friends close and afar go through bankruptcy, and it is not something I would wish on anybody that I know or love or care about at all. It's a brutal process often because of factors within or outside of one's control, you reach a point where you can no longer pay your bills. I had multiple friends in the housing crash of the 2000s go through bankruptcy. They were underwater in their home. Their business collapsed. They had no money. They had all of these bills coming in, and they went to the court and said, we can no longer pay our bills. We declare bankruptcy. They said, we don't have it in our power to fix this problem. That is what we need to do when it comes to this battle with God. Because it's foolish to fight a war you have no chance to win. And so this war between your flesh and the spirit, if you're going to fight it in your own strength, you are going to lose. 
You're going to lose. You're going to lose every single time. And so instead of going into that battle that you know you're going to lose, it would be better to give up before that battle even starts and declare bankruptcy. Because that battle is so far beyond you. Well, I think you maybe need an illustration. My friend Harv is sitting right here on the second row. Harv's one of our elders. By, by training, Harv was a, uh, a fighter pilot. And then he spent a number of years building houses. Harv, right here, I have a super thick set of papers. This is the script to Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. 143 pages long. Harv, I want to give you this script if I can for a second. So here you go. Okay? Harv, I, got a, I have an imaginary assignment for you. I want you to imagine that a month from now, on September 7th, you're going to bring me back a script that equals Hamlet. Yeah, pretty daunting task for someone who's ever written a play before. I mean, if, if you were in Harv's shoes, I mean, that, that would be an overwhelming ask. How on earth could I write a play if I've never written a play before and I'm nowhere near where Shakespeare was? But Harv, the, the equation would change if I told you that the genius of Shakespeare was going to sit next to you or be within you when you sat down to type. If you had Shakespeare with you as you wrote it, you might be able to write it. And friends, that's the same analogy that we're using here. If the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. So you go, Scott, I can't find self-control in this area of my life where I keep blowing it. I know. But if you had the spirit of the living God that was crucified on the cross, that rose from the dead, living within you, then you could have self-control in a way that goes beyond your current understanding of reality. And for you to come to that place, you need to do two things. You need to confess two realities. And I'm going to put them on the screen, and this is going to be a little bit of interactivity. I'm going to ask you to read these aloud with me. Number one, I'm in a war. And I don't have the power to win it on my own. For some of you, that's the very first time you've attended to either one of these realities. And your next step, I know we're not to practices or next steps yet, but your next step might be to begin every day. Begin every hour with these realities in mind. That you're in a war. And in and of yourself, you are bankrupt to win that war. Therefore, step number three, you've got to start relying on his power for your self-control. Because if your self-control is powered by yourself, you are going to lose that battle every single time. The fruit of self-control that Paul talks about comes from the power of the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. It is not walk by your own power, your own spirit, your own strength. It is walk by the Spirit, 
and then you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. It's the big idea again. Self-control is the fruit of our choices made with his power. And there's two components here, our choices and his power. And some of us get stumbling with the choices part, and some of us get stumbling with the power part. And so I love how Tony Evans addresses this. He says, the Holy Spirit empowers the right choice, but he does not make the choice. You must make the choice. Here's the bad news. Wherever you struggle with self-control, God is not going to come in, overpower your will, and make the right choice. That's the bad news. If you're waiting for God to choose the right thing for you because you keep choosing the wrong thing, that's not going to happen. You are not going to passively produce the fruit of the Spirit. At the same time, though, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to make the right choice. So you don't feel like you have it in you to be self-controlled. But the promise of Galatians 5 is that if we walk with the Spirit, we have the power to overcome the flesh. And here's how Evans concludes this thought. He says, the role of the Spirit is to empower the choice you made when the choice is in agreement with God. And this is why so often you don't feel like you have the power of the Spirit because you're making a choice that's not aligned with God's will and His purpose. All too often we go, God, why are you not giving me the power to do this? Because I don't want you to do that. God is not going to empower you to sin. He's not going to empower you to be disobedient. He's not going to empower you to indulge your flesh. And friends, at the end of the day, if you don't submit to the Spirit and you don't surrender to the Spirit, I guarantee you what you're going to do, you're going to indulge the flesh. You're either going to surrender to the Spirit or you're going to indulge the flesh. It's either going to be one or the other. There's no halves. And that's why in Galatians 5.25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If God's Spirit's alive within you, then cooperate with that. Submit to that. Join that. I told you earlier this year I, I had a huge kind of medical issue. I ended up having my gallbladder out two months ago. And so I had to start with just walking like five, ten minutes a day. I'm not a big walker, but I've started to enjoy walking. And I, this text has been so encouraging to me because it's reminded me that walking is not a passive or static activity. You got to move. And so the reason why Paul uses the phrase walking with the Spirit is that, is that God is not just going to show up and overnight make you a different person in every habit and choice. No, he's going to empower you to walk with him and keep in step with him and make those choices with his power. But one of the biggest obstacles to that is number four. To do that, you're going to have to move your feelings out of the driver's seat. You're going to have to move your feelings out of the driver's seat. One of my friends, when I was a new, a new father, he said, Every stage your kids are in is a gift. And you're going to be tempted to want your kids to be in a stage they're not in. Just appreciate each stage for the gift that it is. And so my kids are at a great stage right now when it comes to driving. 
Only one of my kids is old enough to sit in the front seat. But in about a year, all of them will be eligible to sit in the front seat, and a giant war will begin. (laughs) Before we even leave the house and make it to the car, there are going to be shouts of, there we go, you guys have been here too. And they are going to fight over who sits in that front seat. Now the same thing happens in your life and mine with your feelings. Everywhere you go, every trip you take, every day you live, your feelings are in the car with you. And the challenge is your feelings are not shouting shotgun. They're shouting driver's seat. And if you want to build the fruit of self-control by the power of the Spirit, you will not do that if your feelings are in the driver's seat. Because your feelings and your emotions will far more often align with your flesh than they will the Spirit. Now, feelings are not bad. Jesus himself said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Feelings and emotions are gifts that God gave us. They're his ideas. Jesus lived with them. But friends, feelings are not the same as the Spirit. And your feelings can go in the car with you, but I love what Annie Down says. Your feelings can come along for the ride, but they can't drive. Because if your feelings are driving your life, you will not be building the fruit of the Spirit, especially the fruit of self-control. Because when you're tempted by your flesh, your feelings are not going to lead you into self-control. Many times they're going to lead you back into the flesh. This is why in Galatians 5.25, in the New English translation, it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. So if we're living by the Spirit and the Spirit's alive within us, then we have to align our behavior with the Spirit, and that means that we will often not feel like doing what the Spirit does. And our feelings are there. They can come along for the ride, but at maximum, they're sitting shotgun. They're not in the driver's seat. And if we do that, that enables us to take step number five, which is to live with vision and focus. To live with vision and focus. Florence Chadwick is a world record holding swimmer. She was the first woman to swim back and forth across the English Channel. 12 miles. It's not an easy swim. Those are rough waters. But after being the first woman to do that, she decided that she wanted to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. She had lots of help that day, had boats around her to measure the temperature in the water and the wind and to keep animals away from her. But that day, the fog began to roll in, as it often does in that part of California. And 15 hours after she started swimming, she said to the boat next to her, I want to get out. I'm done. And they said, no, you can't get out. You've given this so much. You've trained so hard. You're so close. And she said, no, I I just, I'm done. I don't have anything left. And she got out of the boat. And when she did, they told her, you were a half a mile away from the coast. 
But Florence didn't know that because it was foggy that day. She couldn't see the coast. And later, when she was being interviewed, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I might have made it. Friends, that's the power of vision. When you're exhausted and tired and you want to give up, but you can see your destination, you can keep going. But without vision, fatigue and the flesh, they defeat us. And this is why you have to remember the promises of God when it comes to your self-control. In Philippians 1, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Paul said that these are the fruit of the Spirit that Jesus himself said, if we abide with him, he will produce fruit in us. That's the promise. And like Florence swimming or like a runner running, 1 Corinthians 9 says, don't you know that in a race, in a stadium, all race, but one, only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Keep the vision in front of you. If you don't, you'll be like Florence who gives up knowing that she was closer than she realized. At the same time, though, without focus, you never make progress. You have to have that vision ahead of you. This is what God has promised to do. This is what he said he'll do through me. But then you have to glance at that and then look back to reality and be present in reality. The last couple years, I I didn't intend to start studying it, but I started reading books that were written by Navy SEALs. These are the most incredible uh, members of our uh, military. They go through over a year of training, and the most intense part of it is what's called BUD school, Basic Underwater Demolition School. The washout rate of people who don't complete it is 70 to 85%. The toughest toughest school to get through. And, and one of the reasons why they quit is related to the struggle we make in this area. These are the words of a Navy SEAL named Chad Wright. He says, Navy SEALs who don't make it through Hell Week, which is the hardest portion of Bud School, fail because they're dreaming for it to be over and they're longing for it to end. The ones who make it just focus on making it to breakfast. One moment, one day at a time. Self-control is the same thing. It's knowing that you have this destination at the end, but then choosing with your focus to just tackle the obstacle that's in front of you. For a Navy SEAL, it's just getting to breakfast. It's just making it through that exercise. Just making it through that one challenge. This is a big challenge if you're like me and you're a perfectionist. I will just tell you, I am no longer proud of being a perfectionist. It is not an asset. It is totally a liability, especially in my relationship with God. Because all too often, I look at myself and I go, you know what? I failed. I wasn't perfect. And I envision God in heaven looking down at me going, man, Scott messed up again. But in the scriptures, Jesus says that he is a perfect father. And when my kids were learning to walk, they fell a lot. I have videos of all my kids taking their first steps. What you will not find on those videos is my kids taking two steps, and I'm like, idiot, get up! What's wrong with you? 
But all too often, that's the voice in your head when you stumble and fall when it comes to self-control. And friends, we ought to celebrate the progress rather than expecting perfection. I'm wearing a shirt today. You probably can't see the words, but it says progress over perfection because this is a reminder I need all the time. Jesus was the only one who was perfect and we have passed the test because of his perfection. We, this side of heaven, will not be perfect. So instead of expecting perfection and shaming yourself when you lack it, what if you begin to recognize the progress God is making in you between your destination and today? There are some places you don't have self-control. But do you have more than you used to have? There are some places that you still have kryptonite, but do you struggle with it in the same way that you used to? What if you began to celebrate the progression rather than expecting the perfection? Which is a good way to segue into our practices today. Here's the first one. I want to encourage you at least this week to repeat this phrase, I am in a war and I don't have the power to win it on my own. I am in a war and I don't have the power to win it on my own because you will never experience the fruit of the Spirit if you're trying to do it in your own power and strength. And this phrase is an admission of powerlessness and an invitation to receive the power of God. Two, step number two, practice number two, glance at your vision, but focus on your next step. If Florence could have seen the California coast, she could have kept focusing on taking each stroke. So you have to glance at that vision, but then focus on your next step. And if you're somebody who's struggling with self-control, maybe you need to start thinking like a Navy SEAL and I'm just going to make it to breakfast. I'm just going to shrink down my focus for this next thing that I'm in and I'm going to rely on God's power and strength to make this choice. Not the next 10 choices, but this choice. Author Ed Milet talks about how he never thought his dad would ever overcome his addiction to alcohol and drugs until his dad did. And when his dad passed away, he found notes that indicated his dad helped over 1,000 other men and women get sober. And his most common statement to them was, your goal is not to stay sober for life. Your goal is to stay sober today. You can't today, in your own power, never take a drink again. So your goal is to not take a drink today. To bring your focus down to this moment. Not losing a vision, but remaining present in the moment. And finally, the last one, act like you have all you need. The truth of Galatians 5 is that God has given us all we need to produce all this fruit in his power. And a lot of us have struggled with these fruit because we're like, I don't have what I need. The promise of the Spirit is the Spirit has given us all we need the power is there. What if we began to act like we had all we need? Jesus, we thank you so much that you have not called us 
to anything that you haven't also given us the power to complete. You've not sent us out on a limb and abandoned us there. You haven't put a huge yoke or weight on our shoulders that you have not also given us the power to carry it with you. And Jesus, you constantly give us more than we can handle so that we will live not a day of our life without your power and strength. So today we come to this moment and we declare bankruptcy. Apart from you, we will not have self-control. Apart from you, we will not overcome this thing that our enemy has heaped us with shame and condemnation over. Apart from you, this will always be where we stay. But we thank you that you have not abandoned us, you have not left us alone, but you've given us your spirit, a comforter, an encourager, a friend, and a source of power that goes above and beyond anything we have on our own. We pray that we might begin to see ourselves the way you see us and recognize that you have given us all we need to live a life of godliness and fruitfulness. In your name we pray, amen.